Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. If you make your way back to your seat and grab your Bibles, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you. Lord, thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Thank you that even in our unfaithfulness, you remain faithful. Lord, thank you for the initiating work of our salvation. Lord Jesus, thank you for accomplishing our salvation. Holy Spirit, thank you for applying our salvation to our lives. Lord, it is so incredible to know that you are not some mysterious being, even though there's mystery to you because our minds cannot comprehend. Lord, you make yourself known to us. You speak to us through your word. You are personal. You relate to us as our Father. And Lord, as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known to us? Can you help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand? And Lord, can you take our hearts and transform it? Lord, can today be more than just intellectual and speculation about the future, but Lord, can it be applicable to our lives today as we learn about the call of endurance? And can it transform our hearts as we walk out of here and say, we have a sovereign king who rules and reigns in bringing all of his enemies under his feet. That is the God that we serve. And no matter how life, how difficult life gets, that we can endure faithfully and joyfully because you will have the last word. And so, Lord, can you take this message and minister to each and every one of us? Lord, you know where we're coming from. You know where we're going. You're knowing what we're thinking, how we're feeling. You're knowing the struggles that we're dealing with. And you also know the struggles that we are going to deal with in the future. So can you minister to us? Can you help us to be captivated by you? Holy Spirit, can you just fill this place and illuminate truth to us? Can you convict hearts? We ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. If you have your Bible, it says turn to Daniel. Uh, we're going to be in the second half of Daniel, chapter 7. So we're going to start off in Daniel uh, 7, verse 15. And so my hope for us again in this series is so that we can learn that our Lord is sovereign, that He has, that He is, and that He will establish an everlasting kingdom. And then our call as the people of God is to remain faithful to the Lord. Now, last week, as we looked at chapter 7, I said chapter 7 is really, is really weird. We had scary beasts coming from the sea, causing more destruction. And it seems like every beast that came is more ferocious than the previous beast. And then all of a sudden, as Daniel turns his eyes to heaven, he sees God and describes God as the Ancient of Days who approaches his throne and is, is sitting on his throne. And his throne is like a chariot of fire, a throne of fire. And he opens up this book and he gives us this picture of a court that is in session and he judges this beast and there's this little horn that pops up and is mouthing off and as he's mouthing off the Lord judges him and destroys him and then someone like the son of man comes in and he's been ushered into the presence of the ancient of days and he's been given a kingdom all glory and all dominion and an everlasting kingdom that will endure forever. And we said that these beasts represents these kingdoms or kings and the Son of Man is Jesus. And when you really compare the beast with the Son of Man, Jesus, notice that the beast comes from the earth that represents chaos, but the Son of Man comes from heaven. The beast, their dominion is temporary, but the Son of Man's dominion is eternal. The beast, in their dominion, all they do is wreak chaos and havoc and destruction. But under the Son of Man's dominion, there is eternal glory. 
And so one of the things we said that as we look at, especially this chapter, as we look at Old Testament prophecy, let's not get lost in the details and trying to understand every symbolism, but let's look at the big picture. Like, what is this text teaching us about God? And so last week we learned what it taught us about the ancient of days, that the Lord is sovereign over the nations, that the Lord is sovereign over his own kingdom, that he is establishing an everlasting kingdom, that he will rightly judge all and destroy destroy all those who oppose him. And so as we get to the second part of the chapter, the interpretation of this vision, again, I want to remind us of what is our job in studying this text. Like we need to be reminded that our job is not to understand every single symbolism and try to, to, to kind of tie the symbolism to the 21st century. That's not our job. Our job is to, can we understand some symbolism? Yes. But our job is to look at the main passage. What is this passage teaching us about God? What is this passage? How is this passage pointing us to Christ? What is it teaching about ourselves, humanity? And how does this passage fit into the redemptive plan and the restoration plan of the Lord? So in other words, let's not get lost in the weeds and in the details of looking at everything. Can we look at it? Yes, there's nothing wrong to look at it. But let's make sure that as we look at it, let's zoom out and let's see the big picture. And this is why what I've just said is so relevant as we're going to look at our passage. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. It says this, As for me, Daniel... My spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So let's stop here. So Daniel, in seeing this vision, he's just open and honest. He's admitting that this is a scary vision. It terrifies him. And unlike in the previous dreams and visions that other people had, he was able to interpret it, but this time he was unable to interpret his own vision or his own dream. So he had to ask for interpretation. So he asked someone that is standing by in his vision, and more than likely, this is an angel. Now, does the Bible tell us the name of the angel? We don't. So some people try to speculate, but the Bible doesn't tell us it, so what does it mean? Let's move on, okay? And so this angel tells him, these four beasts that you're seeing represents four kings. And one of the things we've already established is notice the parallel between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. King Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue made of different metals that represent four kings or four kingdoms. Daniel sees four beasts, and we find that these four beasts represents four kings. And it's named in certain order, so more than likely it's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And it's, since each kingdom would have more than one king, as future event unfolds, these four kings could indicate a particular king of these kingdoms. I'm not going to speculate in which king I think it is. But look at verse 18 here. So all of the information so far is not new, but then verse 18 is a little bit different. Look at verse 18 again. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So the question we've got to ask ourselves is, who are the holy ones of the Most High? And most people would agree that these are the saints, the Christians, the people of God. Now, if you paid attention to last week, you would say, hold on, time out here. Because in verses 13 and 14, go ahead quickly and look at it. Who was to inherit the kingdom? Who is receiving the kingdom? One like the, the Son of Man. 
singular. But then in verse 18, we read what? Who is receiving the kingdom? The holy ones, plural, of the most high. So the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, who's receiving the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom? The Son of Man or the Holy Ones of the Most High? And the answer is both. Yes and yes. Which means, this is what it has to mean. It means that in this passage, one like the Son of Man is somehow related to the saints of the Most High, so that they, in a sense, are sharing in the inheritance, sharing in the dominion. How could that be? Well, a real easy term, union with Christ. Let me briefly explain it to you. Remember the title, Son of Man. Remember what we said, what does Son of Man mean? It simply means of man, born of man, okay? So when Adam was created, he was born of man. He was the son of man. And Adam, what did he end up doing? He ended up failing. He was a horrible son of man. And so in a sense, Adam is our representative. In and through Adam's fall, sin and death came all because of his failure. In other words, we are facing the reality of his consequences. His sin now has become our sin. His failure now becomes our failure. And I know what all of you are thinking. That is ridiculous. That is unfair. How can one man's failure be passed on to our failure? I never asked Adam to be my representative. Yes, you did it. But you also didn't ask Christ to be your representative. And so what happened in the failure of Adam being our representative, bringing sin and destruction, the true son of man, the son of God, fully man, fully God, became our legal representative. And in his victory and his conquering and in his inheritance, guess what we get to share? His victory, his conquering his inheritance so in other words what this passage is is meaning to us is that we share in the victory of christ why do we get to inherit the kingdom of god and receive eternal dominion because of christ's victory because his victory now becomes our victory his dominion now becomes our dominion So the very first thing that this passage is teaching us, if you're taking notes, the overarching message, not only have we learned that the Lord is sovereign over the nations, that he is sovereign over his kingdom, but now what do we learn about God's people? What is God's people going to receive? If you're taking notes, God's people is going to receive an eternal kingdom. And you're going to see this idea repeated three times in our passage, which means that's a main message this passage is teaching us. We, as the people of God, who shares in Christ's victory, because he is receiving the eternal kingdom, we ourselves will share in that dominion and receive the eternal kingdom. Now, as great as that sounds... We are going to read in verse 19, Daniel is still very unsettled. Just like all of you are saying, okay, Neil, let's move on because I really want to find out about the fourth beast and the little horn and the ten horns. What does all that mean? That's what Daniel is asking. Now, look at verse 19 as Daniel is asking for more clarity about that. He says, then I want it to be clear about the fourth beast. The one different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and a bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet, whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. This is very similar to what we read in the previous week verse 7 verse 8 so nothing is changing so basically Daniel's like I want to know more about this but notice in verse 21 now he gives us a little bit more detail maybe of why he is so perplexed and why he is like terrified and wanting to know clarity verse 21 says this and as I was watching 
this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the ancient of days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the most high for the time had come and the holy ones there's this main thing that we were learning the holy ones took possession of the kingdom so so let's quickly briefly stop here and now we see, why does Daniel want to know more about it? Daniel looks at this beast and he says, this beast is different. What makes this beast so different? Maybe because there's this little horn, that, ten ho- that, that, that three horns are being plucked up that falls before this, 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 this little horn. Maybe because this little horn is speaking incredible, a.k.a. blasphemous things against God. Maybe because this little horn is waging war against God's people and it's actually prevailing. And maybe in Daniel's mind, he's thinking, why is the Lord allowing this to happen? Like, why is he allowing this little horn to speak blasphemous things against God? Why is he allowing this little horn to successfully oppose God's people? Why is God waiting so long to intervene? And then all of a sudden, he ends with this courtroom scene where the Ancient of Days sits on his throne. That's a, that's a fire and a chariot. And he opens up the book and he finally destroys this little horn. Like, what does it mean? Why is the God of the universe allowing this? One of the things we're seeing already in this passage is how the Lord is sovereign over this little horn. Because guess what? He is succeeding, and we're going to read later on, there's a time frame. There's a perimeter. So let's look at this little horn. Let's see what beast this represents. Who is this horn and what does it mean for God's people? Look at verse 23. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for times and a half a time. But the court will convene, and his dominion will will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. I right. <laughs> let's get into this. What do we know? What's clear about this text? See, here's what helps us in studying the Bible. Alistair Begg says, says this, and it's very helpful. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So the first thing we have to do is let's focus on what we do know, and let's lay it out, and then we can look at maybe and ask questions of the things we, we do not know and see if some scripture sheds light on what we do not know. So the first thing we do know is the fourth beast seems to be the final beast. No more of the beasts afterwards. Most of the description is what Daniel has already seen. However, we know that this beast is seen to devour the whole earth. If this beast represents a kingdom, then we can say it seems like this beast dominion is a big dominion. It's conquering, it's vast, it's conquering the world. Out of this beast, ten horns appear. And Scripture says these ten horns represent what? Ten kings. And again, more than likely, this fourth beast, if we look at the parallel, could be Rome. But with this little horn, it could also be more. This little horn that arises is different. It's a king that's different from all the other kings. And the reason why it's different is because in the process of this king taking on this dominion, Three other kings fall. They're uprooted, they're plucked, they're, they, they, they fall. And what we see is what is at the center activity of this little horn. What does he do? He 
opposes God by speaking blasphemous things against God, and he opposes God's people. He is oppressing the saints. How is he oppressing the saints? Well, we see a little bit by changing the religious festivals and the laws, which more than likely impacts the saints in a negative way. What does that look like? Not 100% sure. Maybe taking God's law and distorting it in such a way that it creates chaos. Oppressing God's people, saying you cannot observe it, and if you observe it, you have to observe it in this way, which now really takes away from everything, because who gave God's people the religious festivals and the law? God did. So what is this little horn doing? In his opposition of God, he's elevating himself as God, and in the process of elevating himself as God, he's opposing God and oppressing God's people who wants to follow God and say, no. Yet, what also do we see in the text? No matter how dire the situation seems for God's people, and no matter how much they're being oppressed, there's a parameter. There's a limit that is set. Which means what? Which means the horn, the little horn, or the ruler, or the king, whoever he is, remains subject to God. In other words, God is in sovereign control of this little horn. Now, I know what you're, some of you are thinking. You're like, Neil, I think you're reaching. I know you like the sovereignty of God, but I don't see it in the text. Well, let me give you an example why I say that the Lord is sovereign over us because he can set the parameters. Let's even think about world activity right now. Um, when the war broke out between Russia and Ukraine, everybody speculated that it's going to be a short war. Was anybody able to put parameters on how long this war could last? Not without <laughs> severe chaos. Now they're speculating that this war is going to maybe last through the end of the year and they'll be over. Is it a fact? Is it an educated, estimated guess? Yes. Our children... Don't tell your, well, maybe you should tell your children this. You are in control of them in a sense, and you can set perimeters. Why can you set perimeters on them? You're in control. You are their authoritative figure. Unfortunately, most of us have lost control, so that's a different story. But the point that I'm making is the fact that the Lord can say, have at it, you're done. No more. What does that indicate? The Lord is, I'm in charge of you, bro. Have at it. Do what you need to do. You got three and a half years. You're done. I'm telling you now. And what we have to see is, like, like when we read this prophecy, even when we read the book of Revelation, like we need to get this heretical idea of this dualism that's taking place between good and evil and this fierce battle that is going on, like during Marvels. It's like, oh my goodness, who's going to win? Like, I hope the good guys, that's not what's happening in Scripture. It's not dualism. The Lord is saying to evil, have at it. Reach your climax. You cannot go past this point. And you know how it all ends? Courtroom, opening of a book. A word of judgment. You're done. You are destroyed. So what do we know even in this little horn? As he's opposing God, he's opposing God's people. The Lord is still in control of him by setting in parameters. Now, that's what we know what's clear in the text. Now, for some of you are like, okay, who is this little horn? Well, let's look maybe at other scriptures. Uh, in Revelation 13, go ahead and turn to Revelation, the, the last book of the Bible. What we're going to see here is 
Clearly, Daniel was not given enough information to know the identity of the fourth beast, the ten horns or the little horn. But again, later on scripture, John might shed some light on a little bit of details that we can see the similarities, but we can also see the differences. Look at Revelation 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Does that remind you of Daniel 7? Okay. It had ten horns. Okay, ten horns. Seven heads. Well, that's a little different. On its horns were ten crowns. Crowns symbolize what? Kings. And on its head were blasphemous names. Differences, but very similar. Verse 2. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, there's a little bit of differences. Daniel described four beasts. Remember the first three beasts was animal characteristics. The fourth beast, not much animal characteristics other than claws and stuff like that. John, on the other hand, how many beasts is he describing? He's describing one beast, but he's using the similar, similar uh, animal characteristics of the three other beasts. So what does that mean? Not 100% sure, but I'm going to give an educated guess more than likely. Remember, when Daniel had the vision, had those empires already come? No, he wrote the vision during the reign of Babylon, more than likely the first beast. When John, on the other hand, when he is the one seeing this vision, guess what? During which empire was he writing this? Rome. So what happened to the other three empires? They were gone. And remember the characteristics of the fourth beast? It's like no other, which means maybe a way it was a no other where the other beasts kind of conquered one another and decimated one another. This fourth beast almost like conquered it, but inherited some of its characteristics. Maybe that's why it made Rome so powerful and unique. And maybe that could be possibly be the way. But it could be also wrong. I just want to be open in some interpretation. But then John tells us, just like Daniel of its blasphemous names or its blasphemous mouth. Look, look, look at verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter boast and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So what was it doing? It was speaking blasphemy. It was opposing God. Notice the time frame, 42 months, three and a half years, Daniel times, times, times and a half. Probably said it wrong, forgive me for that. Either way, we see perimeters. Now, the question that we got to ask ourselves is, as we looked at this passage, Daniel chapter 7, who is this little horn? How long is the time frame? Should the time frame be taken literally? Should it be taken figuratively? So here, I'm sorry, but you're going to be very disappointed in me. I warned you right off the bat of Daniel. Clearly, there's a whole lot of speculation and guesstimates of who this beast is, of who this little horn is, and the time frame. I don't want to continue in that. But here's what we do know. What do we know about this? Is, this is a description of the Antichrist. Is the Antichrist a literal person, or is it just uh, a description of evil reaching its climax? Is, is, is it a culture? Is it a philosophy? Uh, we can come up with all theories, but what do we know about the Antichrist, anti-Antichrist that have come? What do they do? They oppose God. They oppose God's people. They take his law, they take his word, 
they twist it, and in the twisting of everything, it creates chaos and disorder. That's what we do now. And for God's people, in the midst of this earthly uh, kingdom, where the Antichrist, or the Antichrist, little Antichrist, is opposing God and opposing God's people, what does that mean for God's people? It means we will, don't all say it out loud, I know it's not that exciting, we will suffer. That's the main thing. So far, the main thing we're learning of what this vision is teaching us, the people of God is going to inherit an eternal kingdom. And then the second thing, if you're taking notes, what we're learning is that the people of God will suffer in an earthly kingdom only for a short time. There is a parameter set. Set. And regardless if we want to take the three and a half years as literal or figurative, it does not matter. Here's why. Because what we do know for a fact, there is a perimeter. So when you look at three and a half years or a hundred years, when you compare it to eternity, it's a short time. And what the text is teaching us, the main truth is that even in our suffering. There is a divine expiration date. The Most High Judge, the Ancient of Days, is going to appear in this little horn that has been opposing God and his people while he is mouthing off. The courtroom will be set, the books will be opened, and judgment will take place, and the Antichrist and evil and all those who oppose God and his people will be rightly judged and destroyed and God's people will be vindicated. And look at verse, 20, look at verse 27 of Daniel as, as we wrap up, and then we're going to talk about application here. Verse 27, we see the encouragement, the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to who? The people, the holy ones of the Most High. Notice how that truth is repeated three times. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. And this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, when we're thinking about when dominion is given to God's people, we really have to think about Genesis 1. When God created Adam and Eve, what did he give them? Dominion. This is yours. Rule over it. And what did we do? We messed it up. God's fixing it. And then what is he going to do? He's going to give it to us and say, this is yours. Rule over it. Our dominion does not go against God's dominion, undermine or exclude his dominion. Because even in verse 27, we see that the rulers will serve and obey him. So let's talk about application here. Here's the fun part. So as we looked at this vision, what's the main truth that we learned? The Lord is sovereign over the nations. He raises them up. He brings them down. He sets perimeters to their dominion. He uses them to accomplish his purpose, whether it's in executing judgment or for whatever reason. The Lord is sovereign in establishing his kingdom. Even in the midst of evil, in the midst of this scary beast, what's the Lord doing? Establishing his kingdom. The other main truth for God's people, God's people will go through suffering. God's people will face persecution under these rulers. But the Lord will vindicate his people and he will give them an everlasting kingdom. So what's the application? What is the response for us to this vision? If you're taking notes real simple, the response to this vision is a call for endurance. It is a call for endurance. 
and again, verse 28, I might speculate. I, I think the reason why Daniel was terrified and maybe he was pale in the face because he saw the beginning and he saw the end and he saw what people of God had to go through from beginning to, to end. Daniel kept it real. If you saw a vision like that, you would praise the Lord for the victory, but you'll also be like, man, we got to endure. But that is the call. The call to the Christian life is to faithfully endure suffering. Now, I know what most of you are thinking, because I'm thinking it myself. This is not an encouraging, uplifting message. Like, let's not talk about suffering. Life is hard enough. Like, can we just pretend it doesn't exist? No, we can't. Because here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. If we are called to endure suffering, I want to encourage you now with truths that I believe our text teaches us of why we can faithfully and joyfully endure suffering when we're faced up with opposition. The first one, it's not on your notes, but if you want to take notes, you can. Why can we endure joyfully, suffer faithfully? Because Jesus Christ, the triumphant and reigning Son of Man, is enthroned in heaven, and he's subjecting all of his enemies under his feet. Christ's enemies might seem fierce, like the descriptions of the beast, like the dragon, like the antichrist. They might sound scary, but guess what? Who rules over them? Jesus. He is the triumphant king. He is the reigning king. He is subjecting everything under his feet. So why can you endure faithfully? Why can you persevere joyfully in the midst of suffering? Because you belong to Christ, and he is your king, and he rules, and he reigns, and even the craziest, most fiercest enemies cannot be compared to King Jesus. They all will be subjected to his feet, under his feet. The second truth is this, of why we can endure faithfully, and why we can suffer, wow, it's because Christ's victory is our victory. Christ's victory is our victory. Our job is not to accomplish victory in the midst of suffering. Our job is to live in light of Christ's victory in the midst of suffering. Let, let, let me say that again. Your job it's not to achieve or accomplish some victory in the midst of your suffering. I can give you steps to try to do it, but you're going to fail. I'm going to fail. It's going to give you a false hope. No, that's not your job to accomplish victory. Your job is to live in light of the victory that Christ has already accomplished. So why can you live a victorious life in the midst of suffering? Not because you're that awesome. I'm sure you're great, but because of Christ being that awesome and the victory that he has already accomplished for you. And what that means for you is live in light of that victory. Because what happens in the midst of suffering? In the midst of suffering, do you feel defeated? Do you feel like you want to give up? Do you, feel like, do you feel discouraged? Do you feel like God has abandoned you? And then you're looking around and you're thinking, well, I guess it's up to me to start putting everything together. That's a lie. It's a lie from the devil. Your job is to remind yourself, I don't have to be discouraged. I don't have to, be, to feel defeated because Jesus has already accomplished victory. I don't have to prove myself in any of the suffering and rise above it and tell everybody, look, I have conquered. No. I can sit. I can endure. I can be at peace because Jesus has already accomplished all the victory that I need. His victory is my victory. 
Even uh, in Revelation 12, verse 11, the saints conquered the great accuser. How did they conquer the great accuser? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love, for they love not their lives even unto death. How did they win? Jesus' blood, his victory. And all they said is, hey, accuser, I have Jesus' victory. What are you going to do? I'm sitting in, under his victory. I am sharing in, under his victory. The third encouragement truth of why we can endure suffering faithfully is because God is going to give us an everlasting kingdom. And in a sense, we've already received that everlasting kingdom. The kingdom that you have received and you would fully realize is not a kingdom that will be taken away based on your performance, but it's an everlasting kingdom. No one in the world can talk about kingdoms that endure forever because kingdoms is always dependent on its ruler and its subjects. So why can God guarantee us an everlasting kingdom? Think about that. It's guaranteed. That's what you're going to receive because he is faithful. He is sovereign over it. And the last one is that throughout chapter 7, the ancient of days, God is described as a judge. But what we have to understand is he is not the judge only at the end of times even though he is, but he is the judge right now. He serves as the judge right now. Empires and kings do not rule independently of God, but they exist under his sovereign rule and control. So what does that do for us? That should fill us with hope. An encouragement that even in our suffering, the last word belongs to God. He will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. He is with us. He has given us victory. We can serve him well. We can endure faithfully. Here's the call to the Christian life. It's a life of perseverance it's a life of endurance it's a life of suffering well of running the race fixing your eyes on jesus it would be cruel for me to say the christian life is easy it would be a lie for me to say that you follow jesus everything is going to be better because what did jesus teach you want to follow me Pick up your cross. Paul, all those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. And yet we can do it because of all these promises we have from the Lord. And so my, my call to you is to live a life of endurance. Do not be tossed to and fro by every winds of doctrine and emotions and, and nonsense in our 21st century. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of your faith, and live a life of Christian endurance, knowing what you have received and what you're going to receive. You're serving King Jesus, who's ruling and reigning. You have his victory already. He is the ultimate judge will have the last word and you will receive an everlasting kingdom i want to wrap it up with just reading this last passage hebrews 12 just listen and then we'll get to the table hebrews 12 verse 1 it says therefore since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. What do you do with your sin? Get rid of it. Is sin easy to ensnare you? Yes, it is. So is it something you need to be diligent in getting rid of? 
Yes, not once a week, not once a day, every moment. And then what do you do? Then you run. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. But what do you keep your eyes on? Verse 2, keep our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Don't give up. You keep fighting. You keep running, not because you're that awesome, not because you're that disciplined, not because you're a good runner and a good fighter, because of Jesus who endured the shame and scorn of the cross and has accomplished the victory for you. So in a sense, you're running because you've already received the prize. You fix your eyes on Jesus, reminding yourself, yes, this life is hard. This life is difficult. And let me tell you, it's only going to get harder. History is not going up. History is going down. So that means you run, you fix your eyes on Jesus. Take, get rid of this, this stuff that is distracting you, the emotions and the indoctrination of our culture and whatever you're going through. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Encourage one another, hey, Look to Jesus. Keep running. He has endured. He has suffered. His victory, our victory. Live in light of it. Let me pray for us and we get to the table. Lord, thank you that you have endured on our behalf. That you took all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin, and you paid for it in full. And you have accomplished victory against sin, Satan, and death. And that victory you have accomplished now becomes our victory because of you. And we receive that victory. We respond to that victory in faith. So help us to buy faith to endure. Help us to by faith to run this race. Help us to by faith uh, fix our eyes on you. Do battle against our sin. Get rid of it that entangles us and slows us down. Lord, help us to endure faithfully. I just want to give you a brief moment. I know we're running out of time just to meditate. I want you to meditate on this question. Are you enduring and running the race faithfully fixing your eyes on Jesus? And ask the Holy Spirit to help you be honest, to convict you. What is the sin that is ensnaring you, entangling you? Maybe some of you have given up in running the race because you feel defeated, or, or some of you, you're running, but you're trying to accomplish victory and you're running. And both are guilty of not living in light of the victory that Christ has accomplished. One has given up and the other one is trying to accomplish it. And I want to encourage you this morning, quit looking to yourself. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Look to Christ and think about the victory he has accomplished for you. And as we get to the table, what does this table remind us of? The victory he has accomplished for us. Think, think about this. How do I know that Christ was victorious for me? Because his body was given to you. His blood was shed for you. He died in your place. Is he still dead? No. He's alive. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is subjecting everything under his feet. And one day he is coming back to make all things new. And you will receive, if you are in Christ, an everlasting kingdom. So what this table is supposed to remind us of the victory that Christ has accomplished. The reason why we will receive the kingdom is not because we were that great, but because of what he has accomplished on our behalf. And our job is to do what?
is to respond in faith, to receive that victory, to say, yes, Lord Jesus, thank you for the victory that you have accomplished for me on the cross. Thank you for your body that was given for me, your blood that was shed for, 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 for me. I'm no longer living for myself. I'm living for you. And so as we distribute these, these elements, if you're a Christian, you continue to thank the Lord for it. You remind yourself of the victory and you receive it in gratitude and in faith, feasting on Jesus, looking to him. Maybe for some of you that you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian and you refuse to look to Christ and rest in Christ, let these elements pass by. Maybe this morning, if you want to surrender your life to Christ and receive these elements by faith, it doesn't save you. It just symbolically is saying, yes, Lord Jesus, your body's been given to me. Yes, your blood has been shed for me. And after the service, tell somebody about it. Let's walk with you. Let us show you how glorious and how wonderful Christ is because a 30-little-minute message doesn't do justice to the eternal King of glory. And not even a lifetime of studying will do justice to who he is and what he's done. So let's receive and let us be encouraged to endure faithfully. Let's go ahead and distribute the elements. Christ's victory has been achieved and accomplished for you. By giving his body to you, eat it in remembrance of him and thank him. Christ's blood was shed for you to wash away your sins, to make you new. A new covenant that you have with him. Drink it in remembrance of him and thank him. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to be in awe of you. Help us to love you. Help us to follow you. Help us to obey you. Help us to fix our eyes on you. And Lord, whatever the future has for us, whether it be oppression, persecution, suffering, help us to run the race joyfully, fixing our eyes on you. Help us not to get weary. Help us to persevere. And help us to come alongside of one another and encourage one another and say, hey, don't forget the victory Christ has accomplished for you. Don't forget what a wonderful king we have. Don't forget the kingdom that we are going to receive that is going to endure forever. Do not get weary. Do not be discouraged. Keep running, keep looking, keep going. Lord, help us to encourage one another with these truths. So, Lord, continue to speak to us, stir our hearts for you as we worship you, as we are in awe of you, for you are worthy. We love you and we praise you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and let's stand and worship our King. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have been called to run with endurance. And this week, as you run the race with endurance, receive this benediction, which is a word of blessing over your life as you share it with one another from Hebrews 13, verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go and share this in the name of Jesus. Have a great week, Forest Park.